April 11th, 2018. Resistance to the eviction of Lazad and more rebellion across France. Direct action staves off pipelines and police academies. And a call to support anarchist prisoner Sean Swain on this episode of The Hot Wire, a weekly anarchist news show brought to you by The Ex-Worker. With me, the Rebel Girl. A full transcript of this episode with show notes and useful links can be found at our website, crimethink.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to The Hot Wire on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ex-Worker. You can listen to us through the Anarchist Podcast Network, Channel Zero, or on your radio's dial in Eugene, Oregon, every Sunday at noon on KEPW 97.3. Fairbanks, Alaska, Saturday mornings at 9 on KWRK 90.9. And in Tacoma, Washington, every Friday at 9 a.m. on KUPS 90.1. Every hotware is radio-ready, and in our show notes, you can download a 29-and-a-half-minute version of this episode for standard radio time slots. If there's a story or upcoming event you'd like us to include in a future hotwire, just hit us up at podcast at crimethink.com. And now for the headlines. The Oklahoma teacher strike entered its second week on Monday as hundreds of schools closed and teachers flooded the Capitol demanding raises for staff and funding for students. It's been heartwarming to see how teachers in Oklahoma are learning from the previous strike wave in West Virginia. The organizer of the Oklahoma Teacher Walkout Facebook group was quoted saying, When talking to West Virginia teachers, they told me the most important day of the walkout was the second Monday. We hope that the lessons and sense of agency from these strikes can not only be passed on from state to state, but from one sector of exploited workers to all others. Meanwhile, the Teachers Union in Kentucky has shown once again that one of the biggest obstacles to generalizing such conflicts is union leadership. While rank-and-file teachers staged a wildcat sick-out last week, the managerial class of union leaders caught up with the conflict and urged teachers to go back to work on Monday, shaming them for, quote, continued calls for action that deprive students, parents, and communities of the educational services we provide. As if education solely had to do with having teachers at work, regardless of the resources they have to offer. That is a national forest. And the kids have got as much right to be there as the pipeline's got to be there. For us, this is about saying, no, this is still the people's land. No, this is still the people's water. And no, we're not only going to fight you on this, we're going to win. That clip was from an end-of-the-line podcast episode focused on local resistance to the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia. There, tree sits against the pipeline are on the up and up. On April 2nd, a new sit was launched, occupied by a 60-year-old woman identified as Red. While the monopod blockade we mentioned last hotwire is entering its third week, and Appalachians Against Pipelines believe they've set a record for the longest continuously occupied monopod under threat of eviction. Woo! You can hear more interviews with locals opposed to the Mountain Valley Pipeline at soundcloud.com slash pipeline podcast. Since the beginning of March in the occupied Coast Salish territories, also known as British Columbia, 
Nearly 200 people have been arrested for opposing the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which would triple the amount of tar sands oil flowing from Alberta to the coast. After a month of intense resistance, which has included everything from mass marches to lockdowns on construction equipment, Kinder Morgan has announced that they are suspending work on the Trans Mountain project. The company attributes the decision to the regional government's supposed opposition to the pipeline, making no mention of the protests or direct actions, because they don't want to embolden their organizing. It may be a time for some celebration, but not for rest. The only way to maintain victories is to stay organized and attentive for the next time Kinder Morgan or any other company decides that the profits of moving oil outweigh the costs of bad publicity, legal cases against water protectors, and the irreparable damage to the earth. Capitalism ensures that inevitably some company will come along which values profit over all other concerns. Keep the pressure on. As the 50th anniversary comes around for the May 1968 uprising in Paris, it's been kicking off all over France. Beginning the morning of April 9th, nearly 2,500 riot cops began evicting the 250 or so squatters on the Zod, or Zone to Defend, in Notre-Dame-du-Land, France. Our French comrades have prepared a full history of the resistance at Notre-Dame-du-Land, from the first resistance to the airport in the 1960s to the establishment of the Zad in 2009, up to the eviction on Monday. Entitled La Zad, Another End of the World is Possible, it explores some of the challenges that the movement faced after the French government announced the cancellation of the airport project. You can read the text at crimethink.com. As we reported in the Hotwire for February 7th, the government had recently announced that they were abandoning the plans to build an airport on the Zod's land. And from then on until now, the future of the Zod was in the air. Now, it's tear gas, stones, and concussion grenades in the air as the police and squatters battle over control of the territory. We know what is happening at the Zod is brutal and painful as French police forces attempt to destroy an autonomous model of the new world we're trying to build. But we here at the Hotware have been reminded of what beautiful dreamers we can be, holding visions and spaces of a different path forward in a world that's quite literally trying to crush them. We wish those at the Zod luck and safety as they fight back. And to remember that even if they destroy our spaces, we carry a new world here in our hearts. As we go to press, Folks at Lazad are still defending their homes against eviction by thousands of riot police. We were able to catch up with Camille at Lazad about the eviction and what's going down. I'm Camille. I live on the Zad and yeah, mostly. Um, so yesterday morning, legally they can't evict before six in the morning. So everyone was getting ready to get up at six and they came at three and they took so much ground so fast. Um, they took the barricade road, but people had already basically given it to them and they destroyed, or we announced nine cabins destroyed yesterday, but there were actually only seven. Then today they said 16, but we haven't been to verify yet. Um, cause most people are holed up 
like on this one road, the Fusnoir road, it's like a four kilometer road. And the whole thing is end to end police and military vehicles. So we can't really get into the east part, which is the wooded part. Or some people are there. We know there's been a couple evictions, but um, we don't have that much information because they're too far for um, walkie-talkies. There's this thing going on lately of like, we're going to, I don't know how much of this is like getting out in North America, but um, this glorious future where we like negotiate with the state and then we get a contract and we can all like be farmers and live happily ever after. And I think a lot of people that politically disagreed with that have already left, which is why we're so few. And people who disagree but didn't leave, I mean, it's because we don't have anywhere else to go. And so what we're fighting for is like, it's our homes, the lives we live here, it's our gardens, it's because I hate the cops and because they with my friends' houses and like gassed all our medicinal plants and like, the police kept saying we're only going to evict the barricade road where like the radicals live like in quotes basically punks and people that used to live on the street and so a lot of people didn't really care and we're like oh the airport is over and so we're not going to support them anymore and so there were there was basically no one that came to the call out and then yesterday they did a very stupid thing uh which was to knock down the house of these clean adorable farmer people that do press work and now there's lots of people coming and they're like backing down some that also like made our internal conflicts. <laughs> it definitely changed our internal conflicts a lot. Yeah. I don't know. People are doing things. There's an enormous catapult called the Syrian made out of metal that is launching uh, rocks that are about the size of my backpack, which you don't know how big that is. Cause this is the radio. Um, I don't know. Big. I mean, it's just like a f***ing war zone. Um, as you can hear, probably in the background, there are a lot a lot of grenades. One thing we've been trying to get out in the media, especially as medics, is that since they killed someone at the Zad de Teste with a concussion grenade, they, they're illegal in France. And the police headquarters has been saying all day long, there's no grenades, no one's been wounded, we don't know what they're talking about. Um, and I've seen several people who have been very wounded by grenades in like, really dramatic ways um and as you've probably heard over the course of us talking they're going off every five minutes um and so i don't know if it's useful to like tell a bunch of anarchists that the police aren't respecting the law but in the interest of us being safe we're trying to get that out that they are using grenades and a lot um even though it's illegal and they're denying it i was on the on the roof uh, doing lookout and all of the police came running around the corner going, Oh shit, they're coming and firing over their shoulder. Um, and they ran all the way to the road being chased and charged. And that was pretty beautiful to see. Then they came back a couple hours later. They just keep coming back. They're like exhausting us. They're using up all our ammo. They're using up all our barricade material. I went to a house yesterday after it got destroyed and like in the mud, it's like bits of grenades tear gas and like glass bottles but the glass bottles are like apple cider vinegar olive oil poppy flowers from 2016 people are just throwing like like our house lost all all of our cups this morning like all of the glass jars i mean this i mean this is like what we live and so yeah everyone's just like throwing their conserves and their cutlery and like everything because we don't have anything else And panning out to the last month of rebellion in France, 
we're going to run a clip of episode number five of Submedia's news show, TFN. This year marks the 50th f***ing anniversary of the riots of 68, when millions of Parisian students and workers cut class, walked off the job, drank wine, built barricades, ate croissants, fought the pigs, and tried their best to overthrow the French motherfucking government. They were anarchists, most of them. That was the spirit. And that although they were the furthest out in any way politically, that was also the one place where workers joined with students and almost toppled the government. And in the decades that have followed, riots and labor unrest have become as French as a mind-playing frere jack on an accordion. So it's no f***ing surprise that peeps in France have decided to honor the anniversary in the only way you'd expect. That's right, the French f***ing poulet are once again on the back foot as swarms of black-clad cop bashing cortege de tête, beating them back, hawking bottles, and doing Les Smashy Smash. This time around, La Merde's hitting the fan after Emmanuel Macron, the radical neoliberal centrist piece of shit, elected to power last year on a strict platform of not being Marine Le Pen, announced plans to push through sweeping changes to France's state-run rail system, the SNCF. These reforms include cutting the strong employment protection rights of rail workers and taking the initial steps to privatize the SNCF by publicly listing it on the stock market. Part of a broader attack on public sector workers being carried out in the name of EU integration. But the country's famously militant workers aren't going to take that shit lying down. And they've been joined by students pissed off at plant university reforms, not to mention all the sketchy French youths who jump at the opportunity to break from their daily ennui to throw down against the pigs. Because, after all... <laughs> It started really popping up on March 22nd, 50 years to the day that radical students first occupied the Université Paris-Nanterre, kicking off a historic wave of resistance that followed. In an impressive display of decentralized coordination, 180 demonstrations took place across France, including wildcat strikes that seriously jammed up France's transportation grid, and massive protests featuring militant black blocs that were reminiscing of the 2016 movement against the so-called Loi de Travail. But in a stark reminder of how the political winds have shifted over the past two years, later that evening a student occupation of an auditorium in Montpellier University was visually attacked by a mob of mass fascists, including members of the right-wing student group GUD and several teachers who were recognized and outed by their students. These goons rampaged through the halls wielding wooden pallets and tasers, seriously injuring four people including two students who had to be hospitalized with skull fractures. Several witnesses accused the dean of the university's law faculty, Philippe Petel, of orchestrating the attack after he allegedly let the thugs in through a back door and cheered as they literally cracked his other students' skulls. Tuesday, April 3rd, saw the start of three months of planned rolling strikes by SNCF workers, and with the large national union, the CGT, calling for a general strike on April 19th, shit looks like it's just starting. Something tells me that this year... May Day in Paris is going to be one for the cookbooks. In the weeks since the violent eviction of the Montpellier University occupation by fascists, fascists have also attacked a student occupation at the University of Paris, which had previously voted for an unlimited blockade and the formation of the Free Commune of Tolbia. According to the students, the university president, quote, feared to see Azad settle in the hearts of the university. Days earlier, 
riot police also attack a university occupation in Strasbourg. But you don't have to go all the way to France or back in time 50 years to launch a university occupation. Last week, students occupied the chancellor's office at the Southern Illinois University in Carbondale to demand, quote, that the chancellor's office release a statement today, April 5th, 2018, that there will be no police academy at SIUC. This runs parallel to an ongoing popular campaign against the new police academy further north in Chicago, which has seen widespread community and youth participation. And it seems that the university occupation in Carbondale had some pretty immediate, if not wholly satisfactory, outcomes. Here's the occupier's statement from later that day. Quote, earlier today, in response to pressure from students and the community, the chancellor announced to the Graduate Council that the decision on the COP Academy was being tabled. We understand this to be a public relations move on the part of the administration. Pass the decision on the COP Academy off to another group. Put it off to another time, thereby sidestepping the pressure that the students and community members have built against the proposal. To say it clearly, the police, by their nature, are violence who use the threat of death, kidnapping, beatings, and caging people to enforce the power of the few over the many. This is the reason for their creation, as slave patrols and as hired thugs to beat up organizing workers. And it has never ceased to be their purpose. We oppose the illusion that these problems can simply be solved by better training or police reform. Like the prison system, every police reform has ended up deepening their control over society. The Syrian civil war continues, with recent news reporting that chemical gas attacks were carried out on unsuspecting families, children, and the elderly this past Saturday in the area of Douma, just outside Damascus. Hundreds were injured and as many as 50 were left dead as world leaders from Trump to Putin to Netanyahu spar over the fate of hundreds of thousands in Syria. We caught up with someone who was active in the Syrian revolution until 2013 to contextualize autonomous resistance in Syria and what people on the ground really want in response to military attacks by their government. So first of all, thank you for uh, your interest in the Syrian tragedy, but also this, uh, this Syrian revolution. So my name is Salam. I am uh, a Syri- uh, Palestinian Syrian. Uh, I left Syria in 2013, so I experienced uh, two years and a half of the revolution. I was an activist. So Duma is, is around Damascus. Basically, it's an area of working class and farmers. It's an area that experienced significant poverty and unemployment before the revolution. I'm talking about this. So uh, because many of these things, it was very active uh, in the first month of the revolution and uh, it helped like spreading the revolution uh, even around Syria. It was a very important So we have to know that this recent attack in Douma comes after seven years of daily bombardment and airstrikes on on these areas, Eastern Ghouta, by the murderous Syrian regime to retake the city and uh, to displace its population. So Douma and Eastern Ghouta uh, have been under armed opposition control since 2012. 
and uh, has been besieged since that time. So why this happened? Of course, because of the Syrian revolution in 2011. After months of peaceful demonstrations in 2011, the Syrian regime continued to kill protesters in the streets, which forced the people to fight back. And then uh, rebel groups uh, were established in each neighborhood. And this is the Syrian revolution that I am talking about and that the left in general and anarchists should support. They, they rose up against the repressive state and they managed to crash this state in different areas and they managed to, to create different liberated areas from the state after the state machine and police control uh, collapsed in this area and they created local councils at uh, the highest point of the Syrian revolution we are talking about more than 200 local councils in, in different areas managed by people, by civilians and defended by the people, by those people so basically, these factions are local resistance units. Later on, regional countries like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Qatar uh, created and financed Islamist factions among these uh, groups. And those factions, Islamist factions, became a dominant power, actually, in the Syrian conflict. So they wanted to install a new authoritarian regime in Syria, uh, but without Assad. And this is the difference from the West and those countries. They, they want authoritarian Syria without Assad and the Russia wants Syria with Assad and Iran. The Syrian people, however, have been struggling against both murderous regimes to achieve free Syria and so we should support them. The local communities actually resisting, are resisting the Syrian regime and its allies and also these some fundamentalist groups that um, grew during the conflict and they managed to become very significant actors in this, uh, in this revolution. But we have to remember, in Eastern Ghouta alone, there are 20,000 fighters, or many of them are from this Islamist group, and we disagree with them, of course. They are being resistant and people resisting them. But there are also 300,000 people. These people I'm talking about, 300,000 people who participated in the Syrian revolution, who are still now uh, actively engaged in independent social, uh, independent uh, coordinating councils and organizations. Uh, they refused, those people, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, refused to live under the Syrian regime control, while at the same time challenging the authoritarian faction, Islamist faction, at the same time, and wish towards more autonomous, uh, autonomous uh, self-governing areas. So this is the Syrian revolution that uh, I stand for and support and still going on until now. And the story of Efrain, for example, is the same for me. Also, people in Efrain, local communities, uh, trying to defend themselves against, um, to defend themselves against authoritarian structures and powers, whether local structures uh, of oppression or Turkey, for example, for in the case of Efrain. Last year, there was a U.S. response for the chemical weapon attack in Khan Sheikhoun. This is the first time the U.S. responded out of hundreds of times. Last year, around this time of last year. So after this response, the Syrian regime has used chemical weapons, weapons dozens of times, dozens of times actually, without any response. It's not about uh, humanity or regime change, as I said. It's about enforcing uh, international norm, uh, norm by imperial powers. And the regime, the Syrian regime, uh, is permitted, still permitted to kill the Syrian people by all kinds of weapons and by using starvation tactics and siege. 
uh, but not sarin gas and this is really obscene so conducting a strike right now driven by these norms uh, just illustrates how cheap Syrian lives are um, Syrian people have been abandoned since uh, eight years and we need to stand with them and support their legitimate right of self-determination and of living in freedom and dignity there is definitely a geopolitical rivalry between imperial powers especially the US and Russia but both want stability both want uh, authoritarian regimes allied to them in our country in Syria the Syrian people however want something very different they want freedom and justice something can only be achieved through a struggle against all authoritarian murderous parties whether Assad or Islamist jihadist on the one hand or Russia and the US on the other hand this call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored this is anarchist prisoner Sean Swain and my participation in the Final Straw radio show on the Channel Zero network has earned me 1,297 pages of FBI files. Channel Zero network. The truth is dangerous. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to whatsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. In this week's Repression Roundup, longtime anarchist prisoner, radio commentator, and author Sean Swain has launched a hunger strike and calls of support are needed. We love Sean. So please call Warren Correctional Institution at 513-932-3388 and press 7 to raise concerns to the warden's office about Sean's status. Early Friday morning, police in Hamilton, Ontario carried out a house raid and arrested one person, Cedar, on conspiracy charges stemming from the March 3rd anti-capitalist, anti-gentrification destruction in downtown Hamilton. Police seized computers, books, posters, and other belongings, and also trashed the place. For example, they threw some decoratively framed feminist postcards into the toilet. During the arraignment later Friday afternoon, one supporter shouted, Love you, Cedar! And we at the Hotwire echo that. Police have accused Cedar of operating the Tower Social Center, which two weeks ago, saw fascist retaliation for the anti-gentrification march. However, while Cedar has been under arrest, the Tower released a statement about the repression. Quote, We have no desire to engage with the politics of innocence. The concept of innocence and its flip side criminality obscure more than illuminate. No one is innocent, and the most criminal among us run the economy and government. That said, it is worth noting that conspiracy charges are notoriously dubious and flimsy. They are an act of desperation intended to cast a wide net and scare people. Such charges are not a matter of engaging in a particular activity, but rather a matter of possibly encouraging a particular activity. Our politics have always included both gardens and riots. 
We want to see people building beautiful alternatives of liberation, just as much as we want to see people attacking structures of domination. Nothing about this is going to change, and despite recent challenges, our project will continue to push these ideas. We still have no tears for Lock Street, and we remain unapologetically supportive of the activities that took place last month. Keep up with updates about the repression in Hamilton through north-shore.info. Over the last year, Belarus's Ministry of Information has been playing cat to any mouse in the country that clicks on the anarchist website Promen, and Promen have recently had their sites and mirrors blocked once again. Rebels in Belarus are still accessing the site's new address via Tor, but they need help to keep the information up online. You can PayPal them funds at promen at riseup.net or email them there to find out how to get them Bitcoin, which is perhaps even better in Belarus. The next J20 trial begins on April 17th. Friday and Monday, lawyers were able to argue the judge out of allowing the government's supposed expert black bloc witness from testifying under an alias. And the defense also won further limits on what counts as an expert and the admissibility of so-called co-conspirator statements. What happens in this next trial may have an important impact on the rest of the 50-plus defendants going to trial afterwards. So please, Give the April 17th defendants all the support you can. You can call the prosecutor's boss and tell her to drop the charges at 202-252-7566. You can print and wheat paste our new poster about the J20 case from CrimeThink.com, which would be especially helpful if you are in Washington, D.C. You can come back to the courthouse during the trial. You can email info at dclegalposse.org to volunteer to take court notes. And you can keep up with DefendJ20 on Instagram and Twitter for updates throughout the trial. And just in case you think that this kind of state repression is solely a result of the Trump presidency, the Daily Beast recently released an exclusive report about a 2016 Obama-era Department of Homeland Security memo that instructs police to look out for anarchist demonstrators by markers like, quote, wearing dark clothing or bandanas, scouting a marching route in advance, and carpooling to a demonstration, actions that could apply to a wide swath of protesters. Remember, it's not just Trump, y'all. It's the state. Speaking of the criminalization of protests as so-called riots, an important trial is scheduled for May 7th stemming from the uprising in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2016 after police murdered Keith Lamont Scott. On one of the biggest um, streets, yeah, the National Guard and the police um, held a line there and began to shoot uh, the tear gas and the rubber bullets. And on that first deployment was when um, the police's, what we believe is a rubber bullet, um, hit a man, a black man named Justin Carr um, in the head, and um, this was a protester who had come out um, with the spirit of their family members that had always told them about um, being parts of the civil rights movement and came to kind of continue that that um, family legacy um, that night and was killed on the spot with a baby um, on the way, mm-hmm. and. Um, we were there, we saw it. I think all three of us yeah. were there. Um, 
but Glow was someone who was particularly impacted because when Justin Carr was shot, Glow happened to be right next to, to him. Yeah, and I think it's really important to paint the image around whenever a window did break at the arena, um, officers and personnel were there quickly, you know, to apprehend people who they're, you know, naming as criminals. But um, when Justin Carr fell in front of us, not one of them moved to participate in preserving, like, his life because the state wants to protect wants to protect capital and wants to protect property and of course isn't there to protect black bodies especially black bodies that are showing up in defense of in search of justice for and like just enraged about the death of a black um another black body right and so when we come into this space and we see these same um officers a take the life of justin carr and then b treat windows um with more humanity Mm -hmm. let's be real about it um it was it was a really harsh juxtaposition to move about with with tear gas stinging your eyes tears Mm -hmm. running down your face blood um on your clothes and your face depending on where you were That was a clip from the Final Straw podcast with participants in the Charlotte Uprising, including Glow Merriweather, a black trans organizer whose trial is scheduled for May 7th. Glow maintains, as other witnesses do, that the police are the ones who killed Justin Carr during the uprising, and that it was not another young black protester named Raekwon Borum, who the police cynically and opportunistically arrested and charged with Carr's death. Glow also maintains that it's because of their outspokenness about both the police's murder of Keith Lamont Scott and Justin Carr that they were arrested and charged with inciting a riot and assault on a government official. We'll be back with updates as they develop in Glow's case. We'll close out our episode with political prisoner birthdays and next week's news. April 13th is the birthday of Janet Holloway Africa. Janet is one of the Move 9 imprisoned black eco-revolutionaries each serving a hundred years after being framed for the murder of a Philly cop in 1979. And April 16th is the birthday of Walter Bond, an imprisoned Animal Liberation Front operative who was arrested in 2010 for arsons of a sheepskin factory in Denver and a leather factory in Salt Lake City. Writing to Janet Africa and Walter Bond will only take you a few minutes, but it could be the highlight of their week. We have their mailing addresses in this episode's show notes at crimethink.com slash podcast, as well as a guide to writing prisoners from New York City anarchist Black Cross. And now, next week's news, our list of events that you can plug into in real life. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief continue their speaking tour on communities in resistance to disaster capitalism and community organizing as disaster preparedness. This week, you can find their tour in Lansing, Michigan at the First Presbyterian Church on West Ottawa Street at 6.30 p.m. April 11th, in Kalamazoo at the Boiling Point on Oak Street at 6 p.m. April 13th, and 12 p.m. April 14th, in Bloomington, Indiana at Girls, Inc. 6 p.m. April 15th, and 3 p.m. April 16th, and at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee at 6 p.m. on April 17th and 18th. Go to MutualAidDisasterRelief.org to find details on all the tour dates from now through May. April 20th is the anniversary of the mass shooting at Columbine, 
and another round of high school and middle school walkouts is called for that day. If any students out there want printable literature that expands the debate about gun control to discuss the real roots of gun violence in our culture, check out the text, We Don't Need Gun Control, We Need to Take Control, available at CrimeThink.com. Today, until April 21st, is the 25th anniversary of the 1993 Lucasville Prison Uprising, when prisoners came together across racial lines to rebel against their prison's oppressive conditions. Nine inmates and one guard died during the rebellion. For the 25th anniversary, the Free Ohio Movement and the Central Ohio Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee are calling for events in solidarity with the uprising survivors some of whom are facing the death penalty for their alleged participation. You can organize a letter-writing night, drop a banner, or host a screening of The Shadow of Lucasville. On April 21st, protesters will hold a 3 p.m. noise demo outside the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville. Check out episode 50 of The Ex-Worker for an interview that goes in-depth about the Lucasville prison uprising and how it informs contemporary prison rebellion and organizing. There's also a call from the Atlanta IWW and GDC to oppose the neo-Nazi National Socialist Movement in Noonan, Georgia. Follow AFA and ATL on Twitter for updates. But watch out, because there are a lot of fake, far-right-controlled Antifa accounts out there. We recommend those connected with the Torch Network. From April 26th to the 29th, the Southeast Trans and or Women Action Camp will take place in the Smoky Mountains of Western North Carolina. The Action Camp is open to all trans and or women-identified folks and will offer a bunch of different workshops and skill shares. You can find out more by emailing setwac at protonmail.com. May Day is less than a month away, so it's high time to get cracking on your plans for anarchist celebration, remembrance, and resistance. You can send announcements for any cool activities to podcast at crimethink.com. For some ideas, check out the CrimeThink text, The Maydays, snapshots from the history of Mayday, or listen to our very first episode of The Ex-Worker, which is all about the history of the Haymarket Martyrs. June 8th to the 11th is the third annual Fight Toxic Prisons Convergence in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Convergence explores the intersections of anti-prison and environmental struggles and is committed to creating a space in which those most directly impacted are centered. Speakers at past Convergences have included Ramona Africa, the Earth First Prisoner Support Project, Daniel McGowan, Mark Cook, Anarchist Black Cross Chapters, and plenty of other great presenters who do amazing prison abolition work. Find out more and register at fighttoxicprisons.org. The last day of the Fight Toxic Prisons Convergence is June 11th, the International Day of Solidarity with Long-Term Anarchist Prisoners. It's a day for letter-writing, solidarity actions, fundraising, and raising awareness about our comrades on the inside. It's a day to remember that imprisoned comrades are still a part of our movement, and we should do what we can across the walls that separate us to include them in our struggle. This year's Call for Solidarity, which you can find at June11.org, includes updates on long-term anarchist prisoners around the world. From Tamara Sol and Juan Flores in Chile, to Polo Rupa and Nikos Maziotis in Greece, to Marius Mason in the United States. 
For a chronology of June 11th from 2004 up through last year, check out the Crime Think text June 11th, the history of a day of anarchist prisoner solidarity. And that's it for this episode of The Hotwire. As always, thanks to Underground Reverie for the music. And thanks to Salam and Camille for the interviews. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at crimethink.com. Don't forget to check out all the links, mailing addresses, and useful show notes we customized for this episode at crimethink.com. Stay informed. Stay rebel. Plug into the hotline.